don't do 1031 exchanges, people will not sell their properties. They don't want to pay that one third in taxes. They'd rather sit back and continue to collect the checks on their good property. If you're not selling properties, well, people are less like inclined to fix up properties that they've held forever. If you buy a property, one of the first things you do is you fix up. So that means contractors aren't getting paid. You know, real estate brokers are not getting paid. And that cycles through the economy. And this is kind of a tough time to be hurting the economy. Hello, hello. Welcome to the Five Talents Podcast. I'm your host, Abel Pacheco. I interview the top commercial real estate investors and industry experts so you can learn from their experiences. So if you're an investor, a high W-2 earner or real estate or tech sales professional that wants to invest in real estate without having to manage properties or leave your day job, then this podcast is for you. Or if you're already investing in real estate, but you're doing it part-time and you want to become a full-time multifamily or full-time commercial real estate investor, this podcast is for you too. You're going to learn a ton. You will learn from real-life multifamily investors and other professionals in the industry. They're going to share their blueprints for success. And I'm super excited that you're here. So I hope you enjoy the show. Hello, hello. This is Abel Pacheco, your host for the Five Talents Podcast. We are super excited today because we have another amazing guest that's going to really help demystify and illuminate a path for 1031s, deferring taxes, which is just an amazing vehicle, amazing way that people can create wealth and then preserve wealth as well. So Mr. Michael Brady, Michael, thanks for joining. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. Thank you for having me on today. Yeah, I really appreciate your time. When we got connected, I uh, I knew immediately I said, I have to have Michael on our show. I think he's going to be a very beneficial guest and provide some education. So for those listening, uh, if you're interested in 1031s, now's a good time to grab a pen and a piece of paper, get some notes, and you'll have an expert here. Michael's an attorney for the past 27 plus years. He's done literally several thousand exchanges and has helped clients defer about a billion dollars worth of taxes. So if you you know have a question about 1031 exchanges and commercial real estate, and as well as maybe if how you can leverage them, and if you can do one way or the other, he's a great individual to reach out. He's seen 1031s in all different flavors and colors. So he's a fantastic contact and we'll make sure to put all of his contact information in the show notes of our podcast and then you can connect with him here as well as if you like. So Michael, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. Why don't, in your own words, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you do, and we'll just get into a great conversation, my friend. Yeah. So I was listening to your introduction and thank you so much for that. Uh, And I just realized, I think really what that says is that I'm old. You know, I don't feel old, but I hear all that and it sounds like a long time, 27 years. But yeah, I've been practicing law for over 27 years, predominantly doing real estate transactions, corporate transactions, mergers, acquisitions, as well as a little bit of estate planning and probate and enough litigation to know that I didn't like it. So uh, I've been predominantly a, uh, tried to stay out of court as much as possible. I started doing 1031 exchanges as a qualified intermediary almost exclusively in 2005. Before that, I had done them as an attorney, but I had kind of taken the inside role as the facilitator working for a company in uh, 2005 and uh, been doing pretty much mostly that ever since. Wow. Yeah, that's a tremendous background. And 
I'll say experienced and wise, Michael. That sounds better. We don't have to say (laughs) old. I'm 41 and and I, you know, I'm just getting warmed up, my friend. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm 52. I feel the same way. Yeah. All right. That's awesome. Well, so Michael, first, let's maybe start with your company, you know, right off the bat. If somebody wants to get a hold of you, where should they go and where should they reach out to and kind of easiest way to get into your world? Yeah, really email, I guess, is the best way, right? So I'm with a company called Madison Exchange. Uh, We're a national qualified intermediary for 1031 exchanges. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've been in business a long time. As I said, we've done many, many exchanges. And my email address is mbrady, and that's Brady like the bunch or the quarterback, at madison1031.com. And I'm pretty good at staying on top of my email and getting back to people. So if you ever have questions, and I always say, even if you have a question about a deal that we're not involved in, if you're involved with another qualified intermediary and just need a kind of second set of eyes, you know, feel free to reach out. I'm more than happy to kind of give you some guidance or uh, some suggestions. Yeah. So that's great. So let's start, you know, deferred exchange 1031. Let's go at the basics. What is deferred exchange and what is a 1031? Yeah. So when you own really any type of asset, right? When you sell it, if it has appreciated in value, that appreciation or profit is subject to taxes. Okay. And nobody wants to pay taxes, right? And so if you're a real property owner, you know, those taxes, you do get a preferential tax rate. You get if you own the property for over a year, your tax rate is lower than it would be if it was less than a year, and probably lower in many cases than what you pay on your your earned income from working a job. You know, typically the rates are between 15 and 20% federal. Sometimes there's a 3.8% net investment income tax, depending on your income tax level, your income level, and you pay state and local income taxes also. I happen to be in the state of New York. We have a pretty high income tax rate here. And the city of New York, uh, which is not too far away from me and where I live on Long Island, they also have an income tax rate. So when you sell property, depending where you're located, you may be giving up about a third or more of your profit to various levels of government. Okay. And so it takes a lot of the bread out of the basket, as you might say. So, yeah, whether you're making a hundred grand profit, that's 33 grand, or you're making a million, 333 or 10 million, nobody wants to give away a third, (laughs) no matter what. Absolutely. And so, what this allows you to do is basically through a 1031 exchange, if you buy other property, and I should back up and say this only applies to, and it, the statute defines it as property held for productive use in a trader business or for investment, right? So, it's not your primary residence that you live in. It could be a vacation home if the use of the vacation home or second home is predominantly rental and you're just there maybe one or two weeks out of each year. Airbnb um, works, but probably could, not could your be. second house that's. Just your primary if, residence. If you know, if you're in Florida, I'm in New York, as I said, and it's snowing today for like the fourth time this in two months, right? So if you're a Florida snowbird and you went down to Florida, get away from the snow, and you're there six months out of the year, 1031 exchange is not going to work for you. So, but if you're like I said, if you're a person that goes down to Florida a week or two a year, rents it out the rest of the time, uh, or house out in the Hamptons where maybe you go during the uh, off season in the spring or fall, and then you rent it out for if it's in the Hamptons, you could rent it out for several hundred thousand dollars for the summer. You know the property could qualify. So it's property held for productive use in a trade business or for investment. So if you, if you're selling that type of property, you can defer the gain by buying a like kind property. 
meaning another property that's also held for productive use and for trade, business, or for investment. And that the when we say like kind, it doesn't mean exactly the same. So you don't have to basically you don't have to sell a uh, residential rental property and buy a residential rental property. You can sell that residential rental property. You can go buy an office building, or you could go buy a self storage facility, or you could buy you know a factory or um, even vacant land. The rough thing I always hear, and tell me if this is right or wrong, I always hear you just have to buy something bigger than what you bought before. Is there truth to that? Is that how it works? Or, Well, the way it works is so if you want to fully defer your taxes, there's two general rules. And you know, you know, people get hung up on, well, do I have to match the debt? Do I have to match the debt? Well, really, the way it works is you have to do two things. You have to buy a property that's equal or greater in value to the one that you sold and you need to spend all of the proceeds from the sale. Okay? okay. If you do those two things, you'll fully defer your taxes. Ah, um, that's awesome. Okay. But it's not an all or nothing proposition. So if you sold for a million dollars and you bought an $800,000 property, you may wind up paying taxes on up to $200,000 less whatever your closing costs were. Okay. okay. Got it. So it's not all or nothing. But the way you do this though, is it has to be a swap of one property for the other. So the whole concept here is that if you and I each had a property that the other liked and we just traded deeds, right? There's no money being changing hands. So Mm -hmm. the concept is if there's no money changing hands, it's just a continuation of investment. You know, we don't have any money to pay the taxes with, so we can defer the taxes by doing that. Okay. Yep. But that happens very, very rarely. So this, the 1031 has been in the tax code since the 1920s. I think it's actually just 100 years old this year. It's a century of, and not 1031 exchanges, but this concept of yeah. exchanges that's been different statute sections throughout that time. So it's not a loophole. It's part and parcel of our modern tax code. But in roughly the 1980s and the final regulations were issued in the 1990s, they recognize that these swaps of two people with common interests happen very, very rarely. And so they created a structure whereby there's a neutral party that stands in the middle. So for what for tax purposes, and that neutral party is called a qualified intermediary. And that's what our company does, what Madison Exchange does. So what happens is for tax purposes, the taxpayer gives us as the qualified intermediary their property. We then sell it to a third party. We take those proceeds from the sale and we buy a property from somebody else and give that property to our client in exchange for the one they gave us. So they're swapping with us, but it can be done not simultaneously. It can be done over a period of time, which we'll get to in a second. Okay. So they're swapping with us, but that's a very cumbersome transaction if you think about it, right? So now we have two sets of deeds on each side of the transaction, You know, two sets of transfer costs. That could be transfer taxes. Title insurance fees. And we, you know, Madison, my company's part of uh, Madison Commercial Real Estate Services. And one of our several companies in, in Madison Commercial Real Estate Services is Madison Title. They have, they offer title insurance. Uh, they're actually one of the largest independently owned title insurance agents in the country. So they would love this transaction over Madison Title, right? There'd be two title yeah. policies, two on each side of the transaction. So, <laughs> but that yeah. would be very cumbersome. We would have to charge a lot of money because if we're taking title to a property, there's some risk to us, right? So the treasury in their wisdom, not too often you say that, right? The treasury <laughs> in their wisdom decided that it would be sufficient if the money flowed through the qualified intermediary. The deeds can go direct from seller to buyer on each side. All we need to do is take assignment of the benefits of each of the two contracts of sale. 
And essentially, that's the way it works. So you close on your uh, sale, the money comes to us. And as you mentioned, before you do anything, contact us, right? You have to set yeah. this up before you go to closing. The money comes to us and then we spend it when you buy your property. Yeah. The first time I had, uh, the first time I heard of 1031, I had a property that was under contract and it was already, you know, getting ready to close in a few weeks. And I was like, Oh, I learned about a 1031. And they go, nah, you know, a qualified intermediary to help you with this exchange. And if you're, unless you're going to delay closing by, you know, et cetera, time. And, and do you have a property worked out? Another one to buy, which we'll hit on that in a minute, but I did it. So I, I go, Oh, I guess I should have learned about it now. So earlier before that uh, transaction. So for you listening now, now's a great time to look at this before you're thinking of selling really far in advance because of all of this stuff. So, well, let, let me just add two points to that. So we can do exchanges very, very quickly, right? So we do have people calling us from the closing table and saying, Hey, I just learned about this. I want to do a 1031 exchange. That's, That's not awesome. ideal. We That's can get it done. We yeah. get our documents. You know, my team, they get this done lickety split at Madison Exchange. Our operations team is fantastic. They'll get documents out to you, you know, within 10, 15 minutes of getting all the information at most. They don't love that, <laughs> but they can do it. No, one, it's loves, not no ideal. one loves that in any business or any industry. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I need this today. It's uh, 12 o'clock. Can you help? Yeah, but, exactly. But, but anyways, but, you guys are fast. And yeah, but it's not ideal for you because, again, if you've just learned about the exchange at your closing table, well, yeah. now you've put yourself in a hole because you got to buy a property very, very quickly, right? Yeah, yeah. So before we dig into there, because this is the second part of, of what I want to talk about, right? This first part, though, let's recap for those that are basic like myself, right? I buy a million dollar property and I sell it for 1.5 million. Well, that 5 million, sorry, the half a million dollars, 500K is the gain. And that's what normally would be taxed. And you said roughly a third of that, right? So Correct. man, if I have my $500,000 gain, that's upwards of you know $150,000, $160,000 of taxes. It's a lot of money. I don't want to lose it. And so if I use the 1031, use the a qualified intermediary for the exchange. Now, when I sell that property, then all of the flow goes to all the cash flow, the gain. I never see it. It goes straight to you. And this was essentially created, if I got this right, however, 100 years ago, it was, ah, I have a property, I have a property. I don't want to pay taxes on that. I didn't sell it and gain it. I want to be able to swap it. And that's how it was created. And, and so in the 80s, they just created this program for us to use for real estate investments as one of the one of the areas. Did I cap that all right? Essentially, right? yeah. Yeah. So essentially you got it right. Before the 80s, and actually it was the 90s when the final regs came out, okay. people were doing kind of different structures like that. But they kind of put the they created what's called the safe harbor in the tax code for this structure. So you don't have to go through kind of machinations that people used to do. Like they would say yeah. to their buyer, listen, I'll sell you my property, but you have to go buy me a property. And yeah. this guy who just wants to buy a property is like, why do I I want to do this, right? So they they basically formalize it. Then one other thing I just want to kind of elaborate on. So it's not just reinvesting your gain. So that's a popular you know misconception. You basically have to reinvest all of the proceeds from the sale. Okay, oh. it's all the proceeds less your closing costs, your transfer taxes, attorneys fees, brokerage commissions. Uh, less, yeah, all your proceeds will come to us. You you can pay off your mortgage, but you will have to replace that mortgage on the other side with either a new mortgage or with additional cash from other sources. Wow. So uh, elaborate on this for a simple guy like me. Everything I got except for this last part. 
So the million dollar property, the 1.5 million, we sell it. There's 500 is my gain. But you're saying in addition to that, I need to fund, I need to put some extra funds into this, the next acquisition. Not necessarily. So let's, let's take that exact situation. So you bought it for a million, you're selling for 1.5. Let's say you had a $500,000 mortgage. Okay. Okay. 50%, you know, when you acquired the property. So when you close on a $1.5 million property, you're going to walk away with a million dollars. Okay. I'm ignoring closing costs for simplicity. Okay. So you're going to walk away with a million dollars. The bank is going to take $500,000. Million dollars comes to us. My initial down payment and all the front end. Right. Sorry. Okay. You then have to go buy a property. It's $1.5 million, but you only have a million, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So that means you're either going to have to take on a new mortgage of 500 or more. You can, you know, spend a million and, or you don't have to necessarily take a mortgage. If you have cash from other sources, you can always add cash to the transaction. Most yeah. people do not do that, but it, it's yeah. it's possible. Yeah, I, f- I forgot about the original seed. So or, yeah. you know, it took me whatever my down payment it was, or whatever I paid towards the mortgage that gets rolled forward. So yeah, it's not something where I can I can go in and say, hey, this sounds great, and I want to pull thirty k out just for me because I want to have some spending money at closing table. No, you, all of it has to go forward. Well, you can pull the 30K out, but you're going to pay taxes on it. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. Huh. Well, yeah. that's that's so, an option though. Even that is an option. I didn't know that that you could do that. Just pay taxes yeah, quick, on what you did pull out. More common what people will do, I shouldn't say more common, but what people will often do is they'll spend the full you know, million, they'll buy a 1.5 million or more property. Mm-hmm. And then often at some point down the road, they'll refi the property, pull cash out. That's not uncommon. Which I love that refi <laughs> model. <laughs> That's a Which, great part of owning real estate, right? Mm-hmm. For those, we might as well talk about it for at least for a second. For those that don't know what you can do in this exact scenario, I have all my gains going forward. I have all the original seed or down payment going forward. I don't want to pay taxes, even on the 30K that we just talked about, that little example. So it goes forward. Well, let's say you got a great deal on the next property and you buy it at a, at a low enough basis, the property appreciates over value. So in over time, it's going up and to the right and higher price or higher value. If I wanted to refinance that, let's say 75% of loan to value, I can pull out that extra cash and that's a hundred percent tax free. Even though it was my 1031 deal, I can pull out the extra equity in a refinance uh, move. Yeah. Generally refinance proceeds are going to be tax-free. Uh, you know, obviously you, know, you get, you got to pay it back, you know, and you can pay it back with interest. So it's not yeah. necessarily free, but it's tax-free. It's tax-free. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Very good. Well, this is awesome. This has been a great discussion so far. So we talked about the like kind, but this is, it kind of makes it more evident why you're looking for something bigger because you've got your down payment plus the gain. So it's right. naturally going to get bigger. Give us a few examples, if you can, any details you feel comfortable sharing, some of the wins you've seen over the years, maybe just to, to highlight this point, like, have you seen people do 10, 20, 30 exchanges? Have you seen you know, families just really having a lot of either wealth creation or wealth preservation? Love to hear about this side. Yeah. So, you know, and I actually, it's very, uh, maybe a handful of situations where I've seen this deployed. You know, so you can continue to do 1031 exchanges during the course of your lifetime. 
right? And swap up and up and up for bigger and bigger properties as you have more more and more gain in your properties. The downside of doing that though, is you're only deferring the gain, right? Mm -hmm. And you're only deferring the taxes, which means that, you know, your cost basis is just carrying forward. And so at some point, if you sell, you're going to have to pay taxes on all that accumulated gain. Mm -hmm. Under current tax law, what happens though, if you die owning the property, your estate gets a step up in cost basis to the date of death value, which means mm-hmm. all of the gain that accumulated until the point that you die is wiped out. And so the capital gain disappears. And so your estate will not pay you know, capital gains taxes if they then sell that asset like a day later. You know, If there's yeah. gain between the time you die and the time that they sell it, that gain is taxable. So we call that the swap till you drop in the industry, right? Just keep <laughs> swapping, swapping, swapping. Yeah. And- you drop dead and your estate gets a step up in basis. Now, of course, that's a little consolation to you, but your family will certainly thank you. Caution there, two things. One, you always have to watch estate taxes then, right? We don't worry too much this year about the estate tax because the the federal estate tax are over $11 million per person. You have to watch out for state income, uh, state estate taxes, which are usually you know phasing at lower levels when there are state estate taxes. And secondly, there is some talk under the new administration of maybe eliminating the step up in basis. So you always kind of got to keep your eye on that. They did that in 2010 at one point for one year. <laughs> they they did two things. They eliminated the estate tax, which was great for people that like George Steinbrenner, who was a savvy businessman right to the end, right? He dropped dead in 2010. His estate didn't have an estate tax because he was, he was smart enough to die then. But the step up in basis also disappeared. So, yeah. you know, there could have been capital gain taxes, but that was for one year and then it was repealed and, you know, and now we're yeah. in our current situation. So it's always a good idea to keep an eye on taxation policy. Got it. That's why it's called deferred exchange. Unless right. there's like the generational position you're trying to set family up or your state for, which is once you're, once you pass, then it's a step up. There was no capital gains. We're just going to start the capital gain clock over, if you would, right, right now. Okay, got yeah, it. Yeah, essentially that's it. There you go. There's the wealth creation, wealth preservation, and that's how they kind of work together. Don't pay taxes. I don't know if you have any data points on this, but I've heard that the taxes are our biggest expense in life. It's not our mortgage. It's not a car. It's not you know, even insurance. It's taxes. And if you can figure out a way to remove yourself from taxes and you're going to be in a better situation to have more to invest. But I, I don't know if you ha- have any insider data on that. But uh, Yeah, I'd like to compare that to maybe raising children. <laughs> you know, <laughs> probably, probably taxes in because you you know at a certain point in theory, you stop paying for children. Now, taxes are with you the rest of your life. So probably taxes are probably your <laughs> biggest expense. I uh, love it. <laughs> yeah, not your children. Yeah, I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old right now and I'm learning quickly. This will be an ongoing my, there's the biggest expense. That's awesome. Okay. So we, I kind of, I paused you for a minute because I wanted to make sure we got to that first part. The first part is, yeah, we can defer, you know, deferred exchange 1031. The qualifiers, I got to find a property. I got to find something yeah. to swap it into. So let's talk about this. Like you, there's a certain time period and a certain way. And I've, once I've, I, I said, Hey, I want to sell it. You should talk to your, you know, qualified intermediary, help you with the exchange. You get that stuff set up, help you with the paperwork, that type of thing. Then what? Like what's ideal timing? What should I be looking for? How do I do it? Walk us through this part, Michael. Hello, hello. You're listening to the Five Talents Podcast. 
I'm your host, Abel Pacheco. If you're enjoying this podcast, then I know you're serious about achieving financial freedom. Are you ready to create your own path through multifamily investing for yourself and your family? Then I know you're going to appreciate our investor's guide to multifamily investing. It's titled Tackling Commercial Real Estate the Easy Way. We use this guide to invest ourselves in $93 million worth of real estate. So we're going to show you the basic mechanics of multifamily syndications and how to evaluate your next passive investment opportunity. So the best part, if you subscribe to our podcast now, leave us a review and a rating. I'm going to give you a free copy of our ebook. So please take a moment to do that now. Once you've done that, go to 5tcre.com forward slash ebook, 5tcre.com forward slash ebook. Make sure to let us know you left a review and we're going to send you a free copy. So thank you so much for subscribing to the Five Talents Podcast. We really appreciate it. Yeah. So one thing I just want to kind of cover is that in addition to talking to us as the qualified intermediary, before you do anything, before you close for sure, you should talk to your accountant. You know, and I do a lot of seminars for accountants. I always say, hey, guys, I'm on your side. Guys and girls, I'm on your side. You know, we always tell our clients to talk to you. How, by show of hands, how many people, how many of you have your clients actually talk to you before they sell a property? Nary a hand goes up, right? Yeah, yeah. They around, you know, like you have four heads. Uh, you know, it doesn't happen enough, right? Tax decisions, you hire tax professionals, make sure they know what's going on, okay? So ideally, you want to get us involved as early as possible, but usually we like to have a week or two prior to closing to set up the exchange. Once your contract on your sale is hard, there are no contingencies. The buyer has their mortgage. This thing's going to closing. You know, that's really the time at a minimum to get us involved. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, you go through, we do a, we draft the documents, we send them out to, depending where you are, you're either your attorney, if you're represented by an attorney. In many states, you just have a title closer. We'll send it to, you know, the title, the escrow company. We send the documents, you'll sign them at or prior to the closing. You close, the money comes to us. Then you have 45 days to identify the property that you're going to purchase. Time to move. 45 Time days. To move. Is, yeah. 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 Month and a half. So if you just started shopping that day, if you walked out of the closing, the first step you should make right after that is a broker's office. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and get shopping. Maybe okay. even before. I don't... <laughs> well, certainly before. But if you uh, wait until yeah. the last minute, that's when you... <laughs> So 45 days to find and identify a property. That means you have to give us, typically as a qualified intermediary, a list of up to three potential properties regardless of value. If you exceed three properties, there's a rule. It's called the 200% rule that says you can do that as long as you do not identify more than double the value that you sold at. So if you sold for a million dollars and you identify five, four or more properties, four, five, six properties, you're limited to, what did I say, a million dollars, then you'd be limited to $2 million of property. Got it. Okay. There's another well, rule that doesn't come into a couple into, rules um, there. Yeah. That's why so, I usually hear three because so three, it's, I can look for whatever. Yeah. You can use the 200% rule if, you know, another smart strategy is, you know, if you're selling a property at a good value, you may want to buy a bunch of small properties, you know, that have and diversify by market or by sector. Uh, that's a pretty good way to keep wealth also. So if you're selling a multifamily property for a million dollars, Maybe you want to go out and buy, you know, a, a condo, a rental condo to use as Airbnb or something like that. Plus, buy a warehouse, 
you know, I, I, oh, I, okay. You know. So you don't, that's where the, what I said earlier, I generally heard that you have to buy something bigger, but in truth, no, you can buy multiple smaller properties as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've had clients sell factories, but you can buy something passive, something called a Delaware statutory trust, where you buy a passive interest in an, a trust that owns a larger institutional grade property and gets you out of the the nightmare of being a landlord, the three T's, right? The tenants, the trash, and the toilets. Yeah. And you just sit back as a, you know, you're buying something that maybe is a medical office building. Well, yeah. that's awesome. Well, that's, this is probably a good point here. This is where I, I'd like to flow into because we've used an example of a million dollar deal. We used, you know, a smaller one and our audience in the commercial real estate space, I think many of them have bought single family properties. Yeah. And like myself, I got up to 10. It was the most I ever had at once okay. and I would sell them off, but I have never done a 1031 into a multifamily syndication. Yeah. So we, us doing a lot of syndications on the operator side, the anecdotal feedback or insight that I got was, unless it's like, you know, uh, unless your capital raise is $3 million, you're trying to buy $10 million deal and the capital source is going to be like 500 to a million dollars, it's really kind of difficult and you don't want to do this whole thing, right? So maybe if we can help, help me understand it from both sides, either I'm a single family investor and I, I would like to get into a multifamily syndication and do 1031. And then as an operator, like what, what you're going to have to deal with on the receiving end of the 1031. Yeah. Just real quick before we forget, because just they usually go hand in hand. So the deadlines, okay. you have yep. 45 days to identify. I just want to be clear. You have up to 180 days from the closing of your sale to actually close on the property. Oh, okay. 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 45 okay. to identify. I'm sorry to right. cut you off then. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no worries. And 180 days to close. Right. Wow. Well, that's six months. It's like, I know which ones they are, yeah. but it's going to take me six months to close. When do you ever see this actually play out this way? Maybe I, I can't fathom why. Yeah, it usually works out pretty well. Most of our clients identify pretty soon. Like I said, you're giving us a list of properties. So, you know, ideally you're shopping the same time that you're trying to sell Selling. your property and you get them lined up pretty close. And so you have a, an idea of what you're buying. You give us the list within the 45 days. And then, you know, within 180 days from the closing of your sale, you know, that's usually not the problem. You know, usually the problem is the 45 days. Yeah, it's, it's tight. Okay, got it. Yeah. But either way, I got to gotta transact within right. 180 days, buy the next one. The money sits with like you guys as the qualified intermediary, Correct. And like an escrow-ish type of thing, right? Exactly. It's put into an escrow account that just sits there, you know, what, you know, it, it, it's in the bank account. There's nothing aggressive done with that money. You should ask questions if you're qualified intermediary and make sure you know where the money's going. That's important. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Any, any expert in the area, ask a bunch of good, you know, ask the right questions to make sure you're dealing with the right team. But uh, on this topic, okay. So we've gotten the property identified. I feel like I know which ones I'm going to go. Here are my options. Walk us through this in the syndication side so, of it. So here's the issue with syndication. So if you think about it, so when we talk about, you know, a 1031 exchange, we always look at who the taxpayer is. Right. So that's going to be the person that shows the property on their tax return. They should reflect the income on their tax return. It could be an individual. That seems to be somewhat rare. It could be a limited liability company of which you have one owner, which is usually a disregarded entity for tax purposes. So it shows up the income and expenses show up on the individual's tax return mm-hmm. rather than a separate, you know, uh, like corporation tax return. You could own in a partnership, which could be a multi-member limited liability company, or you can own in a corporation. Okay. That taxpayer that sells 
has to be the same taxpayer that buys the replacement prop. Mm. Okay. So, and that that's makes why sense. The tenant, yeah. That's why the tenant in common thing. Yeah. Okay. So the, what we cannot do is sell our property. Let's, let's take a simple situation. An individual sells their property in their own name. Now they want to go buy a multifamily property with other people, mm-hmm. right? Typically a syndication, right? You know, a syndicator is usually just taking passive investors into an LLC. Usually it's an LLC where the syndicator is the uh, general partner and the, and the investors are limited partners who basically are just money people, right? The problem is what they're doing then, if they're investing in your entity, they're not buying property. They're buying a partnership interest. Mm-hmm. Partnership mm-hmm. interest is not exchangeable under Section 1031. It used to be completely forbidden explicitly before 2017. Now it, they changed Section 1031 so that the only thing you can exchange is real property. Right. So anything like a partnership interest is automatically excluded. So it's a silly distinction in my mind, because really, what do you own if you're buying into a syndicated entity? Really, what do you own? You own the property. Right. You own it. Right. But it's a tax distinction. What you own is a partnership interest in an entity that owns real estate. There's a difference. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So typically the way this is structured and it does not usually work great in a syndicate. I want to be upfront. I don't have any magic solutions, but no, typically that, that, that's <laughs> why I've heard like, unless they're going to invest like, you know, a good chunk of, of your capital yes. raise 15, 20, 30% or greater, whatever you want to deal with. It's because of what you're about to explain. I'm assuming. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. Because what they need to buy is a property interest. So they can buy into your project, but they need to get a deeded interest in the property. So the deed will list, you know, the Five Towns Commercial Real Estate LLC mm-hmm. and, you know, Bob Smith LLC as co-owners of the property, Bob mm-hmm. Smith being the exchanger, right? Yeah. That's a little bit cumbersome for you as the operator, right? Because you basically want to manage the project, right? You don't want to, you know, these people are investing with you because they have trust in you. You're going to run the show. You're going to make the decisions, you know, you're going to do things within that entity that are going to give you the ability to kind of earn sweat equity. Right. Mm-hmm. So you, you will, you know, you'll have a management fee. Usually you might have your own money in the deal, but you are typically, if you're putting in, let's say, let's say you put in 5% of the cash in the deal, maybe you're going to take a 30% interest in the property because you're doing everything. Right. Yeah. yeah. You found the property at the other end, you're going to find the buyer and there's different waterfall provisions, you know. And when we do that co ownership I talked about, where there's two entities or two individuals that own the property, that's called a tenancy in common. Mm-hmm. And there's a revenue procedure the IRS put out that is guidance on what they look for to determine that something is truly a tenancy in common as opposed to a partnership. So even though mm-hmm. you're calling it a tenancy in common, if you're doing some kind of preferential returns and some, you know, and, you know, you don't have unanimity, you, know, you don't have, don't require unanimity in making decisions like selling the property and things like that. Well, the IRS can collapse that and say, well, yeah, you're called it a tick, but it's really a partnership. And that uh, could blow yeah. up that person's exchange because they didn't buy a tick interest. What they bought is a partnership interest, even though you're calling it a tick interest. And yeah. so you have to look at, it's called RevProc 2002-22 for anybody who can't fall asleep tonight. You can pull <laughs> that up on the internet. You know, take a look. It's quite a ways into the actual revenue procedure that they give you. I forget the number of things that they look for. I think it's 12 or 13. But you want to stay as close to those possible if, as those as possible if you're setting up a tick. And so, you know, it's not ideal. Like you said, you, you as the operator, you're not going to want to do this if somebody's coming up with $50,000 in a $10 million project, right? You're, you're looking for something that's going to make or break your deal, you know. 
And, you know, and typically the way it's done is that so you do that, you exchange into the tick. Some point down the road, if it's a long-term hold, you might bring that person in. Usually, you know, two years would be considered relatively safe. Sometimes they do it in connection with a refi. So the project will be a refi. And as part of a bank requirement, the bank is generally going to want to lend to a um, one entity and not two. And so you may do it that way. Yeah. All right. There it is. There's the reason. So I've heard tenant comments, a tick. And, you know, as soon as that comes out, that's underwriting on the actual 1031 exchanger as well. So yeah, underwriting yeah, meaning yeah. from they kind of have to be with you on the loan to qualify because they have to be an owner. Or uh, I forget the technical term you said, but I heard, oh, you've got to own it. The next yeah. person's got to own the next piece of property as well. And that's why. Oh, very good, Michael. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, that's essentially it. They have to own the property, right? They have to own their interest in the property. Yeah. All right. Well, what's uh, in the last couple of minutes here, have you seen any successful multifamily syndications, 1031s? Has, has that experience to come across your plate? Or how about, oh, and also second question, I, I shouldn't ask two at the same time, but so I don't forget it. Money coming in the syndication and then what happens with money going out? Like, can we 1031 it again or does everyone have to get out of it? If everyone decides to do 1031, everyone's got to go or any of those insights, it would be awesome. Yeah. So we've seen people do it successfully, you know, into the syndication. Again, it's usually for large capital, you know, large percentage of the deal. It doesn't happen a lot, but it happens for the bigger investors, right? You know, typically that's the way it works, right? If you got the money, you, make, a, you got the money, you make the rules. Right? Yeah. If I have a $3 million, you know, $4 million capital raise and somebody's one or 2 million, it's probably worth a little extra effort for me. Yeah. $50,000 minimum investment. Not so much. Probably uh, but, not. Yep. And the flip side of that is it's the same problem on the, on the escape, right? Or the, uh, when you sell the property. So again, if the LLC is selling the property, your investors are they own an LLC interest. They're not eligible to do 1031 exchanges. So what typically and this is usually done on a smaller scale. It doesn't work in a big syndication as well. It can, but it's tricky. Yeah. Usually you have to get them out of the partnership before the exchange. There's a couple of different ways to do this. We could spend another hour talking about it, but <laughs> the most common way is called the drop and swap. So basically you tick out the property to the individual investors as tenants in common. So the LLC will deed the property to the actual individual investors who are then eligible as individuals in the tenant in common to sell their individual interest in the property and do separate 1031 exchanges. Got it. Got it. I should mention it depends where it is, right? So, you know, ideally you would do this restructuring well in advance of selling the property. Okay, if you're doing it on the eve of closing, you know, the federal government has challenged these in the past. They seem to have not be challenging them, uh, at least anecdotally, they're not. You don't know what goes on, you know, that's not in published cases, but the states do take a look at it. So if you're in an income taxing state, you know, so if you're in Florida, Texas, or a state like that that doesn't have income taxes, there's nobody kind of looking over your shoulder from a state level. New York and California, for instance, have a lot more skin in the game because, you know, they're, their income tax rates are range, you know, between 8.9, I think, for New York and over 12 for California. You know, so wow. there's a lot, <laughs> they have a lot <laughs> to gain by finding, you know, these taxes. And so yeah. they've been a little bit more aggressive in looking at the drop and swap transactions. So you have to, it takes advanced planning. That, that's the best advice I can give you is 
you know, talk to your accountant early, talk to us early if you're doing any type of restructuring like that. Got it. Okay. Yeah, that sounds perfect. This is probably also the reason why anecdotally most indicators that I've spoken to, they're like, nah, I mean, we may yeah. be able to get you in, but getting out, you're going to pay the tax man and coming out and then you can decide what you want to do with it, which is, you know, still ultimately why we talk about accelerated depreciation, buying a cost segregation study or paying for the engineer to do that, then accelerating the depreciation on the front end of your buy to kind of have some of the front end tax benefits but at the end, the capital gains, like, yeah, we're paying the piper. What I like, I guess what I tell my strategy for others is just, you know, look for another deal that has accelerated appreciation in the year that you sell, you know, your capital yeah. gain in your yeah. ca- and then reduce your, your, your taxes on the front end of the next deal. So well, no, that's hundred percent true. I mean, all we're talking about here really is the time value of money, right? So yeah. it, it basically, whether it's a 1031 exchange or a cost seg, you're deferring, you know, you're deferring taxes. And, you know, ultimately the benefit of that is you're using that money to make money. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's the way I look at it as a 1030 in a 1031 exchange is essentially those tax savings or a term free interest free loan to buy bigger and better property. Yeah. You know, if you're yes. taking that one third off the table, right? If you have, you know, let's say a $6 million sale and you have to pay $2 million of taxes, you only have 4 million to reinvest. Yeah. Right. And now if you had the full 6 million, you could buy a $6 million property or, you know, at 75% LTV, you know, you could buy a $24 million property as opposed yeah. to, you know, a, uh, what am I doing here? Uh, yeah. A $16 million property. Yeah. We right? want the leverage. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. And man, that, that buys you way more doors or way bigger property. And we're, we're really trying to force appreciation up, use leverage where we can. And, you know, I think that's awesome. Those, those are great mechanics. Yeah. Thank you for reminding us of the goal, Michael, <laughs> all this, all this stuff. I am new to, you know, the 1031. I haven't, haven't done a 1031, right? I'm new to accelerated appreciation and cost segregations. So I, we just started leveraging that in the last three years. And just even in this first part, I, I, man, my eyes are open. This was you know, just a, an area that it, if you don't have any expertise in, you really don't know that these options are available to you. So my advice for anybody that's listening, don't get hung up on, you know, Googling all these terms or trying to figure it out, just call a pro, call somebody like Michael, because Michael and Madison will absolutely help walk you through all this stuff. I don't know how to do a ton of the transactions we did in the single family world towards the end that, you know, somebody's like, asked me, well, how did you do that owner finance? How did you do, you know, this deal? How did you? I don't know. And <laughs> And now we do syndications and they're like, well, what's the cap, you know, what's the structure for that? And, and I go, well, I know there's a private placement memorandum. There's a two LLCs. There's one for the property, one for the managers, but well, how do you register with each state? I, I don't know. I talk, call an expert, call an right. syndication attorney that helps you <laughs> do just like you call a 1031 expert. And, and sorry, I'm long winded on the spot, yeah. but don't get hung up. If you're listening, how there's people that can help you with the how just go figure out, like, once you've made the decision, then act on it. Talk to a pro and tell them what you're trying to do. Sounds like a couple of pros, your account, accountant and also a 1031 intermediary like like Michael here. And yeah, this has been awesome. It's been a great conversation. Yeah, just to amplify that, you know, if you're fixing up your property, right, you're usually going to call a contractor. You're going to save money by calling a contractor. Likewise, with your taxes, it's the same thing. You want to use professionals. Yep, Absolutely. 100%. Well, thank you so much. Is there anything we didn't talk about today that you wanted to highlight or anything that you were hoping I asked and I just never got to? 
No, the one thing I would say is, you know, there is some talk about the Biden administration and the Democrats potentially targeting Section 1031 and potentially maybe eliminating it from the tax code or limiting it. You know, it's hard to say how realistic that is. You know, the Democrats do have a thin majority. I don't know if they have the votes to carry that out, but it does bear watching. And I would urge anybody that's involved in real estate to keep an eye on the tax proposals. And, you know, listen, talk to your legislators. You know, if you have an interest, that's what they're there for. And so I would urge everybody to get involved if if that's a concern to them. Yeah. You know, a lot of people kind of have stated on this, they're like, well, I'm hoping that it stays around. Obviously, everyone wants Everyone that's in real estate investing probably wants it to stay around. What do you think chances are, odds are? I mean, does it does it look favorable for us? What's your take on it? So I'm not going to be political at all here. So I try not to do that. So, but I've been wrong every step of the way. So take everything I say <laughs> with a grain of salt. Number one, I wasn't so sure that Biden was going to be elected in the first place. I thought that like Trump had surprised Hillary. I thought that that might happen a second time. So that was where I was wrong, number one. Number two, once that happened, I am actually on record on a podcast saying, well, you don't have to worry because there's no way the Democrats are going to take two Senate seats in Georgia. (laughs) 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 A couple of weeks later, I was proven wrong. So, so far, I'm batting zero. But that being said, I think with the pandemic, especially, there's a lot of things going on right now that are bigger priorities than tax reform. Number two, I think the majority in the Senate is fairly, fairly thin. You know, they can do this by reconciliation. So they they do not necessarily need to, they showed with the 2017 tax act under the Republicans, you only need a majority of votes in the Senate to get this done. As opposed to most legislation that's not done under reconciliation where we have the filibuster rules currently. So it, it could be done, but I don't think you have that kind of unanimity underneath the Democrats. I think Number one, I think that many of like Chuck Schumer, you know, majority leader, he's my senator. I don't think he's as liberal as people think he is. He's not the liberal firebrand that he's kind of portrayed in the media. He has been very amenable to business interests during the course of his career. In New York, where we are, real estate is a very big part of the economy. So I don't know that he necessarily supports it, but I'm not sure. But also you have a very center to right wing of the Democratic Party, Manchin and Sassima and some others, and then other senators who also have real estate interests and, and representatives have real estate interests. So so that may come to play. There's also a very active lobby that is on this, you know, our trade organization, the Federation of Exchange Accommodators, you know, is constantly talking, has a lobby, is talking to legislators, as do other groups such as the National Association of Realtors, I believe, and I'm not a member of it, I believe the Real Estate Roundtable is involved in this and some other groups. And so they're trying to show that what this would cost the economy. You know, real estate is a large portion of the economy. Exchanges are anywhere between 6 and 12% of all commercial real estate transactions. And the stats show that the majority of all real 1031 exchanges, ultimately, people are not really doing this, the swap to you drop. Ultimately, at the end of the day, over, I think, 85% of all 1031 exchanges result in a taxable transaction. So it's not mm-hmm. going to generate the type of income that they think it is. you know. And, and then it kind of cycles through the economy. If you don't do 1031 exchanges, people will not sell their properties. They don't want to pay that one-third in taxes. They'd rather sit back and you know continue to collect the checks on their good property. If you're not selling properties, well, people are less like inclined to fix up properties that they've held forever. If you buy a property, one of the first things you do is you fix up. So that means contractors aren't getting paid you know, real estate brokers are not getting paid. And that cycles through the economy. And this is kind of a tough time to be hurting the economy. Yeah. 
Yeah. I didn't even think about that. The percentage of people that are doing it still paying taxes. It's just a matter of deferring, just not doing Correct. it today. And that incentivizes a lot of people. Oh yeah, I can sell today. So I don't have to pay taxes and I do want to transact still. Yeah. Yeah. And buy a property that you're going to fix up and make, you know, more amenable for tenants, you know, instead mm-hmm. of, you know, these old beat up buildings that, you know, that tends to happen when you own a property for 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love it. Thank you very much, Michael. I'm really glad I asked you that question because I, I I intended to, I wanted to hear that answer and then I, I didn't get to it. Well, we'll keep our fingers crossed on it and I appreciate the insight. It's been a great, great show. Thank you very much for joining. Yeah. Thanks again for having me. I, this has been great and forward to seeing it when it's uh, recorded, when it's out. Yeah, absolutely. Well, again, my name is Abel Pacheco. I'm your host for the Five Talents podcast. We really appreciate you joining. If you heard some value, you got something you learned today, go reach out to Michael. You know, him and his company in Madison, they, they work really hard. would love to uh, have your business if you are doing that. If you're trying to put some 1031 to a syndication deal, don't call me unless it's a sizable amount. <laughs> and and uh, don't expect to come out with a 1031 out of the syndication. But if those first two don't apply and you have a significant amount, I'll be happy to work with you. <laughs> 1031. So thank you, everyone. I appreciate it. And again, this is Abel Pacheco signing off. We'll see you on our next show. Bye-bye. Thanks, Michael. Yeah, it was fun. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Five Talents Podcast with your host, myself, Abel Pacheco. Each week, we're going to bring you interviews from industry experts and commercial real estate investors who followed their dreams and achieved massive success. Before you leave, let me ask you a few questions. Did you enjoy this episode? Did you learn something valuable? Was your mind stretched to what's possible and what you can achieve? Do you want other experts just like the one you heard today? If you answered yes to any or all of those questions, then please take a moment to subscribe to the Five Talents Podcast. Give us a five-star rating. And most importantly, leave us a written review. Tell us what you liked. Tell us your favorite guests. Give us any feedback. I'm excited to learn and improve so you can get a more valuable show. So thank you again for subscribing to the Five Talents Podcast.